During the Cold War, one of the few issues in which the United States and the Soviet Union agreed was that other states should not have nuclear weapons. The likelihood that one of them would use those weapons or transfer them to a regime or a group that would was too great. This was called the principle of non-proliferation. It was regarded as an established norm of international behavior expressed most explicitly in the 1979 Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, better known as the Non-Proliferation Treaty, or NPT. Is it still in force, or relevant, or even meaningful? What is being done to prevent the acquisition of nuclear weapons, as well as chemical and biological weapons, by regimes hostile to the United States and its allies? FDD has a new non-proliferation and biodefense program, attempting to answer such questions and provide policy options. Chairing the program is Ambassador Jackie Walcott, former U.S. Representative to the United Nations in Vienna and the U.S. Representative to the International Atomic Energy Agency. Charles Kupferman, who served in senior positions in both the Reagan and Trump administration, is a member of the program's Board of Advisors. They're with us today to talk about nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons. Should be fun, don't you think? I'm Cliff May, and I'm glad you're with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Well, look, first of all, thanks for joining us. Jackie, Charlie, great to see you guys. Great to see you. Thank you for having us. All right, let's cutting to the chase. My impression is that what's called the non-proliferation regime is badly broken. Am I wrong? Go ahead, Jackie Starr. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thanks, Cliff. Thanks again for having us today. Um, I would say that the non-proliferation treaty, the NPT, has worked fairly well over the years to keep um, the numbers down of nuclear weapons states. And um, at this point, though, I think we are coming to maybe a crossroads. Uh, every five years, uh, in the last round, it was seven years because of COVID, there's a review of this treaty. And the last one, which was last year, um, didn't end in any consensus. And in fact, Russia was the country that um, broke the consensus. And while that's not entirely unusual that there's not a consensus document, I think events in the world that we're seeing today with um, the new, uh, better, if you want to call it that, relationship between Iran and Russia, Russia and China, China and Iran, or in North Korea, I think we're at somewhat of a crossroads on if this nonproliferation structure that we've had in place for these many years is going to really help. And just be more, a little more explicit. What was the what was what was the difference between what you call the consensus and Russia's view? Basically, is it that Russia thinks, "Hey, if the Islamic Republic of Iran gets nuclear weapons, that's uh, okay by us." Is 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 that the difference? I think in the case of of the NPT, Russia just has um, had a reason they wanted not to have a consensus document. There's they everything is in the final document from. Um, comprehensive test ban treaty issues to various arms control issues. And Russia has um, reasons not to agree, basically, that I, I can't tell you if it was because of Iran specifically. But, you know, years go into these documents, uh, preparation. And um, I think previously in certain places like the Security Council and in the NPT Review Conference, 
countries didn't want to be sort of single out as the spoilers, it doesn't matter anymore. If you veto something in the Security Council, if you don't join a consensus, there isn't that uh, stigma anymore. So Russia and China have really um, increased where they're not agreeing in, in all kinds of international settings. Charlie, a little bit of history here. So India became a nuclear power before, but actually in, in 74, which is, and the, and the NPT, they started like in 1968, getting signatories toward, you had, the, you had Russia, you had the US, and you had the UK, I believe. And France. And, and France, and they wanted to get 40, and then by, by 79, they had a, they had the document and a, and a treaty. But India in that time became a nuclear power, and then uh, and then Pakistan in 1998, which was after. So already it's starting to fray a little bit, and then I think most consequentially, for I mean for for decades, or I certainly go back to the Clinton administration, there has been an attempt to stop the the, uh, the North Korea and its dynastic uh, and, and communist leaders from getting nuclear weapons. Um, the diplomacy failed, even though Clinton and others said, oh, we're doing wonderfully well. We've managed to come to an agreement. We've given them money. We've given them concessions. But it didn't. None of that was true at all. The diplomacy absolutely failed. And now North Korea has multiple nuclear weapons, is building more, and has increasingly sophisticated missiles with which to deliver them, they believe, anywhere in the world. That sounds pretty bad to me, no? It is very bad, and I agree with your assessment that the diplomatic track has not been a uh, positive impact on stopping the spread of nuclear weapons among states who are threats to the United States. And the North Koreans are major proliferators in sharing their weapons technology with both Iran and the Chinese have shared their weapons technology with Pakistan, who there is a book that says we will eat grass if we have to, to acquire a nuclear weapon after the Indians detonated their nuclear weapon. And let's not remember, let's not forget uh, South Africa was on the verge of having nuclear weapons, as was Taiwan stopped its program. And in the case of Taiwan, they do need nuclear weapons to deter the Chinese threat. And I would make a similar case for Japan to possibly acquire nuclear weapons for deterrent purposes. So the question is, which kind of state has nuclear weapons and what are they designed to do? And our allies have them to deter attacks on themselves and be part of a Western alliance. Uh, the Chinese are proliferating nuclear weapons internally and building up a substantial strategic nuclear weapons capability that will mirror basically the Russians and ours in many respects. I want to be clear on this. We know this is not a matter of conjecture that the North Koreans have been working closely with the Islamic Republic of Iran to help the Islamic Republic of Iran acquire a nuclear weapons capability. We, we know that, right? We know that. And we also know that they've been sharing um, ballistic missile technology with Iran based on their developments in North Korea. So there's a very active program between those two states to acquire and de uh, develop uh, sophisticated nuclear weapons. And if you think, what does North Korea, communist kind of neo-Stalinist, have in common with the Islamic Republic of Iran, it strikes me there's not much ideological that they have in common, but they both despise the United States and the U.S. leadership role in the world, and this is a way to, to, to erode that. Yes, that's one reason, and the other reason is economic. 
and North Korea mm, benefits right. uh, substantially from Iranian uh, payments to them for their technology and assistance. Right. So this, this gets back to my original point that I asked Jackie about, that it seems to me that we are talking about a fraying of the non-proliferation regime when we talk about our enemies getting nuclear weapons, helping each other get nuclear weapons. And as you say, and I don't I don't disagree. Maybe I don't know if Jackie will. It may be that Taiwan and Japan need nuclear weapons as a deterrent. Japan could have them very quickly, as I understand it. They're only that they have the technology. Right. It's it's not hard. I don't know where I don't know where Taiwan is, but that would suggest a very different a very different approach, a more dangerous one, perhaps. But. If your enemies are going to have this and you're not going to be able to use diplomacy to stop them and you're not going to have international norms that everybody abides by, well, you're just in a different world, no? I agree. We are in a different world. And I think, you know, the nonproliferation treaty and the theology behind it has failed to stop aggressive threat states from getting nuclear capabilities. So I'm. You guys are disagreeing a little bit, and uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to, you know, make things worse. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know that I disagree. I, I just think that there, it did. Um, we did convince South Africa, or South Africa decided, you know, rationally not to pursue their nuclear weapons, and and there are um, other cases, um, not. Many, but I think that having that in place over many years did make some difference. But I think it, we're at a point now, as I said, and of course, if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, we haven't even mentioned the Middle Eastern countries that will want to go nuclear. We're, we're, go, and, we're going there. Okay. I, although I, I, I want so, to pick up on what. Go ahead. Finish that. I want to pick up on something no, you said. No, I, I just think we we have to t we have to start looking at all of this in a new light. And if you know we, which means to me at least in most of these cases, reinforcing what we've done in sanctions before, um, actually having a credible uh, military threat yeah. and making clear that we have it. Yeah. And I think that when you see, I, I can just talk about my experience, having been out now from um, out of Vienna now for just about two years, um, to see what happened in Afghanistan, we lost so much credibility in the, dip, if you want to call it the diplomatic world, the world of leverage in sort of the international order, if you will, in the UN settings and the different negotiations. And I don't think we're sending the right message around the world that we really are going to stand up against um, these countries that are trading with each other against sanctions. They're developing their enrichment. They're doing all these things. We're seeing it happen, but it doesn't seem like we have a this administration right now has a very clear plan that everybody in the world knows. And then you look at Ukraine and how that was allowed to happen. Well, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself ahead here. Of yourself, but you're right. But that's what I want to come back to, because you mentioned South Africa, which does sound like a pretty good example. On the other hand, two nations that voluntarily gave up their nuclear weapons, Libya and Ukraine. And uh, maybe, Charlie, just run us through both of those scenarios. Libya voluntarily gave up its... Really, Muammar Gaddafi gave up his nuclear weapons, ended up dead. Ukraine voluntarily gave up its weapons in exchange for the Budapest Memo, which guaranteed territorial integrity, guaranteed by the U.S., Russia, I forget who else, maybe U.K. or France right. again. Um, and, of course, in 2014, his territory was stripped and nobody did anything about it, so the commitment was not honored. And so, and, and 
flesh that out if you want to. But most important, if I'm some, if I'm an ally or an adversary of the U.S. and I'm looking at what happened with Libya and what happened with Ukraine, what lesson do I draw? Well, in the Libya case, I would make one distinction. Gaddafi took a lesson from what happened to Saddam Hussein with his weapons of mass destruction program. And once he saw that we were willing to remove the weapons of mass destruction from Iraq, uh, he thought that that would not be a good plan for us to let the United States take active measures. So the fact that he ended up dead, I don't think is because he gave up nuclear weapons. I think it was because of a revolution and the cultural uh, fissures in Libya. But he did go to school on what happened to Saddam Hussein. On the Ukrainians, they believed that they were getting themselves more westernized and joining in a Western movement, and that was part of their expectation when they gave up their nuclear weapons. And the interesting thing about Ukraine is the Ukraine um, industrial, military industrial complex, so-called, produced most of the major missile systems for the Soviet Union. Mm. So, you know, they had a different role as well, historically, in the Cold War. If Ukraine had not voluntarily given up its nuclear weapons uh, under pressure from the U.S. and because it wanted to be part of the West and part of the nonproliferation regime and show what it good, would Vladimir Putin have done what he did in terms of invading and annexing Ukraine and parts of the eastern Donbass section in 2014? And would he have invaded in February of 2022? Well, as a hypothetical, I would argue that if the Ukrainians maintained a nuclear force, uh, Putin's strategic calculus would have been far different. Right, right, right. Far different. And there, again, as as various, whether it's Kim Jong-un or whether it's uh, Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader of the Islamic Republic, look at that, they got to be drawing lessons. And part of that is the basic deterrence calculation. And nuclear weapons are designed to deter various acts of aggression. And so if the Ukrainians had a nuclear deterrent vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union, Russia, uh, which right now doesn't look much different than the former Soviet Union in many respects, uh, I don't think uh, Putin would have made the decision he made. And it was clear that we had no leverage over Putin to deter his invasion of Ukraine most recently, especially since we did nothing in 2014 when he seized Crimea and started the conquest of the eastern part of Ukraine. Now, many administrations, I would say, didn't do anything about the development of nuclear weapons in the Islamic Republic of Iran. The Obama administration turned its attention to that problem and came up with what's called the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which I'd argue is not comprehensive and not a plan of action. But the kind of my view and the view of FDD and really everybody here, we don't agree on everything. We agree on this, is that at the at best the JCPOA would have delayed by a few years the acquisition of nuclear weapons by uh, the the regime in Tehran. At best, delayed in exchange for huge financial benefits, and so it was a bad and a flawed deal to begin with. The claim that it would have stopped them rather than delayed them was never really credible. The Biden administration came in and said, well, we're going to make a broader and stronger deal. The deal that's on the table and has been on the table is weaker and shorter for sure. That's pretty clear. And it hasn't been accepted 
by the Iranian regime. Why? Because I think they don't want to do a deal with the U.S., maybe because they don't want... I, I'm not sure why, but it's not because we... The, I mean, they, they just haven't accepted it. But that is that is not stopping proliferation. That is delaying proliferation. And then, of course, just saying what, what Obama would say is, well, this is the best deal we could get. It's the best deal anybody could get. I mean, we just know that. And it's either this deal or it's all out war. That's that. Th th those are the only two alternatives. That's what it is, right? Well, what the JCPOA represents, uh, regardless of its specific terms, is a philosophy of arms control. Mm. And that you believe you can contain threats through arms control negotiations and arms control agreements. And the history of arms control is not a very positive one with respect to Western allies' security. And every agreement that we have negotiated with our enemies has been either violated or ignored completely by those who signed up for those treaties. And our history of arms control negotiations with the Soviet Union bears witness to every agreement we've ever had with the Soviet Union was violated by the Soviet Union. We know the Iranians were cheating on the JCPOA. So assuming you know, the negotiations get you a piece of paper, I would argue that's not going to retard or delay what our enemies are going to do with those weapon systems that they will develop. And right now, China is working assiduously to build up its nuclear arsenal, isn't it, Jackie? It, it is indeed. I understand from open source reporting even that they're likely to double their nuclear weapons at this decade. Um, I just want to go back to Iran, if I could, for a moment. Yeah, sure. The JCPOA was always based on a fiction. Charlie basically said this already, but yeah. having been there for in Vienna for right after we pulled out of the JCPOA, the Trump administration, all of the colleagues in the Board of Governors of the International Atomic Energy Agency, almost without fail, I'd say, uh, were just appalled that we had left the JCPOA. And mm -hmm. it was um, often that in our board of governors meetings, the United States would get about as much criticism as Iran would get. So they had all, you know, hitched their wagons to this diplomatic um, success they thought they had gotten in the JCPOA. Meanwhile, the Iranians are, you know, over, over here um, hiding things and um, lying and all the the facts supposedly that went into clearing them so that the JCPOA could go forward were basically just shoved under a rug. Nobody really questioned them. And the idea was to get the momentum to get the JCPOA in place and get the, the UN Security Council to bless it in a certain time frame so that they could have day one on their schedule. It was all a farce, really. Now, did it slow them a little bit? And, you know, the, yes, there were inspections. But um, their intentions, you know, have never been good, I, I would say, since at least early 2000s, if not before. And we know they had a weapons program and they had put it on the shelf. And thank God that the Israelis found it and snatched it. Um, out yeah, of a warehouse. This is the archive showed that there are plans for which the Israeli Mossad exactly. took out, found in, 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 in Iran. Yes. Went in. Loaded into trucks and got it out of the country. Just right, remember, and yeah. so of course this was very classified information, uh, even in the Israelis' view at the time. And it was it took a while for 
the Israelis and the United States separately and the IAEA separately to like go through these documents because there were hundreds of thousands of them and thumb drives and everything else. And independently, those three entities found that there were there was plenty of evidence that there was a weapons program. And there were still questions about where this um, some material nuclear material is today. So the Russians and the Iranians would say this is old news and it means nothing. And the IAEA, and they're still saying it, it's like we're we have to we have to account for every bit of nuclear material. And until we do that, you can't really have a JCPOA because it's based on not reality. But but explain to me how you talk about the board of governors saying they were who are so committed to the JCPOA and when we're giving you such a hard time that the U.S. had pulled out of the JCPOA. Oh, these are not stupid people. These are uh, how, these are people from Western countries. Um, how do they not see what you see, what Charlie sees, what David Albright and other nuclear experts see? With the the Israelis proved by pulling out the nuclear archive. How when you said to them, "Don't you?" I mean, you, know, you must have. Don't you understand that the JCPOA does not prevent this regime from getting a nuclear weapon? Do you not see that? Do they say what do they what do they say or what are they thinking behind what they say? Well, I think a lot of them, um, and I'm talking about our good allies. Yeah, I know. First of all, they were in the forefront of negotiating the deal. Right. So, and they always. Even going back to the early 2000s in Vienna and elsewhere, they wanted to lead on Iran. They think they know better than anybody else on how to negotiate with Iran. So they managed to get this thing signed and blessed. And the storyline was internationally and within the diplomatic world, we just ma- we just had a major coup here of you know like nothing before we've ever seen, successfully stopping Iran's nuclear weapons program, or nuclear, whatever you want to call it. And that, I think, just sort of took over. It was like groupthink in a way. And thankfully, we got the archive. But even then, it took um, it took a year or two to say, this is what's here. You can't deny it. And then countries started coming around, which is how we managed to get them briefed up. And we managed to get a, a resolu- the first resolution in eight years censuring Iran for their safeguards problems, but it's it's like pulling teeth in a way. And um, the other thing that I think is important to just recognize as an undercurrent is that for whatever reasons, the Board of Governors of the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is a very important agency in my view, um, they don't want to lose the portfolio, if you will, to the UN Security Council. They want to solve it in Vienna. But that's the structure that's in place. If you if you find a country in noncompliance with their safeguards agreements, you're supposed to f- let the Security Council know so that they can do whatever they're going to do. And that's what happened in the early er, 2000s. And it's not happening now. But then the Security Council is a mess now, too. Well, that's what I was saying. The Security Council has Russia on it, and Russia's protecting Iran's nuclear program. And this is program. why I'm talking about this architecture that has been in place uh, is at a crossroads, in my view. Well, it gets back, though, I think, to the theology of arms control. And that many people who are invested in a negotiation and a piece of paper, regardless of the facts, remain invested and committed to that piece of paper. And the history, again, not to be too repetitive, but negotiating these types of agreements with our enemies is a a losing proposition. And it's just a false belief 
that those documents are going to stop a nuclear threat from coming our way. Am I too harsh to say this? Uh, to a lot of American diplomats, the goal is to get an agreement. If it's a good agreement, wonderful. If it's not, you still got an agreement. And so, you know, Wendy Sherman was, a, you know, was in this administration, was in the Obama, key negotiator way back when with Clinton on the agreement. What was it called? North the, Korea. Uh, North and North Korea, the agreed Six accord. Six-party talks. Right. And that was considered a great success. It was a failure. But in the diplomatic service, you can often fail up. I got the agreement. It wasn't a good agreement. That's not really relevant here. I got the agreement. We knew, we didn't walk out of there with nothing. We got an agreement. The North Koreans agreed. They went on to build nuclear weapons. Not our fault. Why not? That's what it was all about. I I, I think there is that, men that mentality. An agreement is an agreement, and we succeed, even if the agreement is a doesn't achieve its, its goals. And the challenge is proving that the agreement has not stopped allegedly what it was designed to stop, which gets you into all the arguments over, are they cheating? Right. The saying we use here at FDD is don't let process get in the way of purpose. And that seems to me what's happened a lot of times here. As Iran moves closer to getting a nuclear weapons capability, if you're the Saudis who are existentially threatened by the Islamic Republic of Iran, at least as much as the Israelis are, well, you got to think we probably need nuclear weapons too as a deterrent. And I think that's already going on. In fact, uh, I just noticed the, uh, sorry, the Washington Institute Simon Henderson reported the other day that Pakistan's chief of army staff, uh, the head of the country's military and the custodian of its nuclear weapons, General Amir uh, Asim Munir, flew to Riyadh on January 5th for talks with Saudi defense uh, prince uh, Khalid bin Salman al-Saud. And then he traveled to the United Arab Emirates for talks with President Mohammed bin Zayed and his national security officials. And what this appears to be about, we don't know this exactly, but this is the best guesses, is that Pakistan's Islamic bomb project, um, historically funded by Saudi Arabia, they didn't have to eat grass because the Saudis said, we'll fund this for you. We will have an Islamic bomb and you'll have it. India has it. You need it. Uh, came with the promise that the nuclear weapons Pakistan has and the delivery systems would be provided to the kingdom if the kingdom ever felt they needed them, and perhaps to the UAE as well, because the UAE is also existentially threatened uh, by uh, by the Islamic Republic of Iran, as is Bahrain, as, as are quite a few countries. So that's pretty credible, isn't it, Charlie? Yes, and let's not forget the historic relationship between the kingdom and China, who provided ballistic missiles uh, many years ago, which, again, are still there. The ballistic missiles in? In Saudi. In Saudi. That came from China, right? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. The other thing with China is w there was a belief for many years, I think I shared it, that China could kind of be counted on. This is when we thought of them, we thought of the Chinese uh, Communist Party as a strategic partner in some sense. Uh, they understood that North Korea is kind of like, you know, their pit bull. And they got to keep their pit bull on a short leash. And we can look to them. If they want a good relations with us, they want a good trade, they'll do that. Uh, that's no longer no, and those reality. Assumptions then were because uh, the balance of power between China and the Soviet Union was decidedly in the Soviet favor. That is no longer the case either. So the Chinese are the superior partner in any relationship with Putin, even though the Russians right now have a larger nuclear arsenal than China has, but China will catch up in a very short period of time.
And so the United States, for the first time in its history, is going to be facing two threatening architectures of nuclear weapons from Russia and China, which have a larger numerical count than ours. Plus North Korea, as we plus said, North which Korea, is also in this right. axis of tyrannies right. right? that we're talking about, right. plus possibly Iran, which is part of this right. axis as well. So in the traditional days of the Cold War, when we would calculate uh, exchange ratios of how many targets we need to be able to threaten against our adversaries, it's very different now than it was in the 1970s and 80s with only dealing with Russia. One other thing I, I want to make sure we touch on in this subject, and that is when I was in graduate school, first of all, arms control was the theology we were, we were, we were taught above all else. But the other thing that we came to believe in, and I think I did, and maybe I still do, was the idea of mad, mutually assured destruction. Okay, because, And I, I would say I'm somebody who has worked as a journalist and was a student in the Soviet Union, the, the Russian communists were evil. But very rational. They had gone through World War II. I think I believe certainly you can you guys can argue with me. I'm happy to have you do so. That the that the Soviets they didn't want to exchange nuclear missiles with the U.S. They didn't want that to happen. They thought that was bad for all. They were not you know they were not the equivalent of suicide bombers. Under Mad, if one side struck first, the other side would have an opportunity to strike back, and so nobody would benefit. But I know Charlie, you have some questions about the the way we view the way whether that that was really true as we all believed it to be. Well, again, in that era, we tended to mirror image what the Soviet Union was doing to reflect what we were doing, and it worked until someone paid attention to the types of weapons that the Soviet Union was acquiring, and the types of weapons that they were developing and deploying were not weapons that you needed for MAD. They were weapons that would provide them a first strike disarmament capability against the U.S. nuclear deterrent. And that's when we finally realized that the SALT-1 treaty wasn't working and the SALT-2 treaty wouldn't work as well, which never was ratified by the United States Senate. So the Russians were going for nuclear superiority and the capability to disarm the United States. And that came as a cold blow to our arms control theology. Yeah, this is a bit of a digression, but I'm really interested to get your thoughts on this. So right now, as, the, as Putin is doing badly in terms of his invasion of Ukraine, he is threatening sometimes through surrogates, through media figures to say, you know, we might, we, we might attack the U.S. with nuclear weapons if the U.S. provokes us. And I think Biden, I, think, I don't think Biden is clearly worried about that possibility. They've also talked about we could, we could hit France because France is giving Ukraine help as well. Do you have any sense of how realistic these threats are and how seriously we should take them, either of you? Well, in the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, Putin wants to control escalation. And, and we have ceded to him escalation dominance because there are certain things that we could do if we wanted to that would help the Ukrainians defeat Russia. But we've Such been holding long range back. missiles, that's uh, what, yeah. different cooperative programs, different types of weapon systems, the ability to strike certain Russian targets and so forth. Uh, but we've given escalation dominance in that theater to Putin. Uh, whether Putin you know, is serious about uh, using nuclear weapons, and nuclear weapons come in various shapes and forms, or tactical nuclear weapons for use on the battlefield, or theater nuclear weapons. Uh, but in your reference to France, France has a nuclear deterrent as well, designed to make sure that anyone who attacks France receives nuclear response. So I think uh, before we get to the nuclear threshold with 
But with Putin, there's some other steps that we could take to help Ukraine defeat Russia. And until the United States decides what it wants to accomplish in the war, uh, Putin is going to maintain escalation dominance. All right, let's move on to uh, chemical weapons. They've actually been used more in recent years than in the past, haven't they, Jackie? Yes, they have indeed by Russia and um, other Syria. Well, I, I mean, Syria's dictator, Bashar al-Assad, he used them against his own people. President Obama warned him, don't do that again. We have a red line. You're going to be severely punished if you do. He said, I got it. And he used them. And what did Obama do? He said, well, I'm not going to severely punish them. I'm going to trust the Russians to help me out here because they've offered it, end, which ended up with the Russians uh, helping Assad kill his own people. We're talking hundreds of thousands at this point, maybe 500,000. We've seen various numbers for, for this. Um, and gave Russia a foothold in Syria they had not had. And gave Russia a foothold in Syria. They've got a warm water port on the Mediterranean. The Israelis have to deconflict now to keep the Iranians out of Syria. Um, and the Iranians, knowing that the Iranians are helping Russia, and who knows what they're asking in return for that. Terribly dangerous situation. Seems like a terrible, terrible mistake. We also know that Putin has been has used chemical weapons, not least as a method of assassination. I'm thinking of um, Viktor Yushchenko, the third president of, uh, of Ukraine, 2004, poisoned with dioxin, a chemical found in Agent Orange. Sergei Skripal, former Russian military intelligence officer who acted as a double agent for the UK's intelligence services in the early uh, 1990s and 2000s. In 2018, he and his daughter were poisoned with a Russian-developed Novichok nerve agent and British uh, Prime Minister at that time was Theresa May. She said that she said Russia was responsible. She expelled 23 Russian diplomats in response. In 2020, Alec Alexei Navalny, who is perhaps the most important opposition figure in Russia, though he's in jail, he was poisoned on a when he was on a plane uh, flight from coming from Siberia. Happily, they diverted the plane, went to Germany, and they managed to cure him. Again, this is another thing that Putin has gotten away with for a long time, which may have given him the reason to believe I can get away with anything I do, no? And he also used polonium-210 against an agent, which you could categorize as a nuclear weapon as well, since it's a radioactive <laughs> isotope, to poison an individual who died a horrible death. So where is the international uh, community on these things. Uh, chemical weapons, we, I, that's another thing. Where we, theoretically, we all agree chemical weapons shouldn't be used. There should be real ramifications when we know repeatedly that Putin is using them for all these purposes. You know, there's a perfectly good organization in The Hague called OPCW to deal with chemical weapons as part of the international organizations. And and I say perfectly good, meaning it's 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 carrying out the treaty on chemical weapons that they're they've done some good things but i have to say in the recent years with these developments that you just described there haven't been very big ramifications against those who are well russia's still a member out. right russia's still a member and as i understand it this administration hasn't done much to try to take them out of there uh, syria we did get um, their vote taken away uh, which was you know okay but that was um, in the Trump administration. Did you get that? That, that I believe that was in this administration. In this actually. administration, okay. Um, 
But I don't think, I mean, I do think this is one of the issues that our program at FDD really mm-hmm. needs to take a closer look at because there is pretty much agreement on Capitol Hill on zero chem- chemical weapons, biological weapons. These are, these are um, tenets that have been around for years and years. And I think through most of the world, but now that this is happening or has happened, there haven't been many um, ramifications for the countries that are poisoning people. So I think this is an area that uh, needs to be strengthened and there need to be, I don't know what yet. I think this is something we really need to look at and, and make some changes to. All right. The FCD did try to be one of the NGOs that was participating in a particular in a conference on this recently. And recently, and FCD was specifically blocked. I think we we believe either by Iran or Russia, right? Uh, there could be some com- combination or one or the other: Russia, China, Iran. Apparently, uh, one country can do that, block an NGO from participating, and um, FDD was the only American. NGO that was um, not allowed to participate. We are pursuing that. FDD is the the group is both on the Hill and um, and with the administration, and and hopefully that won't happen again. It's very convenient that Russia can be a member of the of the conference and then uh, and, and be a violator of the rules, and then keep an NGO that would criticize them from participating. Um, biological weapons, Charlie. Is it possible or even probable? that the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese, the People's Liberation Army, were doing research on bat viruses for the purpose of producing biological weapons? Absolutely. Which we know they have is. a you very... You think it's possible or probable? Probable. We know they had a very active uh, BW program, as did the uh, Soviet Union and now Russia. So, and it's very hard to verify and get good access uh, to their facilities, but uh, we know that they are... Uh, working on both offensive and defensive BW systems. Right. And we know that the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, had representatives at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Right. Now, again, it would still say, well, that's the lab leak theory. But I think the evidence is mounting that it wasn't a, a, a theory, that it was a reality, that they let something out that uh, contaminated individuals that led to the pandemic. Right, right. I mean, our friends at the Vandenberg Coalition just really just released a bipartisan letter calling for the fullest investigation into COVID origins and a review of the failures to do so thus far because, I mean, you know, that hasn't happened. Now, that also brings us to the World Health Organization, right? Because at the, during the, the period of the, of, the, of the intense pandemic, the head of the World Health Organization was Tedros Ghebreyesus, um, and I how to say this? He was more sensitive to the um, to the equities and interests of the Chinese Communist Party than he was to those of the U.S. and the West. Even though the U.S. provides about ten times as much funds for the WHO as to China, but he, nonetheless, he was very highly sensitive. Uh, he had been running it since 2017. Not too long ago, there was an election for that for, for the for the role of Secretary General of the WHO. The Biden administration offered no alternative to him whatsoever. He ran unopposed, even though he had not done I, by most lights, by American lights, had not done a good job. Why wouldn't the Biden administration say, well, we've got a candidate, too, and we're going to we want somebody who cares more about 
<laughs> our interests and the world glow and what we see as the global interests than the interests of the Chinese Communist Party? That is a very good question, Cliff. <laughs> um, you know, they I don't know the specific answer to why they didn't. I think they should have. Um, they were about the same similar times they were running an ITU candidate who yeah. American who won. And I can just tell you from- Intellectual property organization, right. which is a very good thing, very useful to have. I'm, we don't want the Chinese and who are stealing- pro Again, the Chinese who are the greatest th thieves of intellectual property in the world want to run the intellectual property organization. It's, a, it, yeah. This. And at WHO right now under Tedros, they are negotiating a pandemic treaty. I don't think we really have any idea yet what's in this treaty. So I don't know what to exactly comment on, but my guess is it will not be something that our Senate, if it comes to us, would support, because I think it's going to give more power to the head of the agency. And it is this person that you mentioned, Tedros, who was, um, shall we say, a little more sympathetic with China than we would have wished. Um, I am personally excited to, I, I assume a lot of people are, that we have this new um, China committee being set up on the Hill to look at all these, I, I think a number uh, of these, Gallagher, exactly. Whatever, yeah. So I, I would, I would, I don't know what all they're going to cover. I've, you know, it's sort of new, very new, <laughs> yeah. but, and I know they're looking at the whole strategic and economic, you know, competition between China and the United States, but I would, I, I would guess and assume that this COVID origins and what's been happening with WHO and then potentially this treaty would be something they would want to take a close look at. Is part of the treaty or is it separate that Tedros I know wants to make sure that the U.S. has to, contri has to contribute more money and has less control over how the money is spent? Do you aware of that part of it? I, I don't know if that's part of the treaty, but yeah. I understand that is the, that is the, the going um, desire. Yeah. And I do, and I, apparently some of that's already happened, that we've lost some control over or he has more control over our voluntary funding and how it's used, which is exactly opposite what voluntary funding is supposed to be for. Right. But on the scale of intelligence certainty, as is uh, relates to COVID or Havana syndrome, for example. Oh, yeah. You better tell, tell, give take 30 seconds to what Havana syndrome is. The question will be when we determine the cause of both COVID and the cause and perpetrator of Havana syndrome, what do we do about it? And I'm pretty persuaded that the Russians are behind Havana syndrome. And I'm pretty persuaded that the COVID was not uh, uh, an accidental uh, program. It was an accidental leak. But then the question is, what do we do about that? Right. And just for uh, the Havana, when we're talking about Havana syndrome, people don't know. We're talking about not just in, well, originally in our embassy in Havana, Cuba, you have diplomats who are suddenly getting brain fog and getting. Uh, we had National Security Council staff attacked in London. We had individuals attacked on the White House grounds. Causing neurological problems. Neurological. Vienna. We had Vienna too. Uh, individuals attacked in Vienna. We had families attacked in China with children who were affected by it. And again, uh, the intelligence community has not yet determined, you know, the cause and perpetrator. But should they, which I don't think they ever will, because they rely on uh, different standards of evidence, but at an 80% confidence level, as the intelligence community likes to use for high confidence, I think we can determine who is behind 
both of these events. And then, as you say, say, the question is, what will be done? And I think we all agree at this point that very little is being done about any of this at this moment. And I guess that's going to, again, that's what our program at FTD is going to try to figure out what can be done, how would it be done? I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. Anything you want to say about this process or anything you want to say about you know that can be done or just any other points you want to make that I didn't uh, manage to provoke from you? And the pandemic um, preparedness, that's, that's clearly part of what this whole issue is. How do we, how do we get ready for the next, the next COVID or whatever it's going to be, whether it's intentional or leaks or natural or whatever it is. And that is something that um, I don't think that get, as far as publicly, at least we don't know of a, enough attention going to that. And it's something that FTD can look at. And um, Charlie, anything? No, I think the FTD spectrum of activities covers most of the waterfront of the threats the United States and our allies face. And I would encourage you to keep up the good work. I know you don't need my encouragement, but we need your encouragement, need your input, we need your advice. Uh, but, you know, you have a wealth of materials on your website and the programs that you are engaged in are making a difference because it educates people in a way that they will not find any other resource to educate themselves with. We'll leave it there for today, but there's more to discuss as we as we move forward. Wait, what's that? <laughs> Unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> there always is on this topic. Jackie Walker, thanks for the work you do with us and thanks for all the work you've done. Same for you, Charlie. Thank you. Pleasure to have you both here. Thank you. And thanks to all of you who have been with us for this conversation here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foreign Policy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us, preferably with five stars. Ratings and reviews help give us visibility and the opportunity to reach more people who seek to understand the most critical national security and foreign policy issues. Also, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow FDD on social media and visit our website at fdd.org. There you can find research by FDD experts. You can subscribe to all FDD's products. You can catch up on any past episodes you may have missed. Finally, we'd love your feedback, your ideas, your questions, your criticisms. Send us an email at foreignpodicy at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.